Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Operation 2020. To the Democratic nominee. From me. RE, unsolicited advice. Congratulations on your hard-fought victory. You came out on top in the largest, most talented field in Democratic primary history. It's quite an achievement. You should be proud. Great. Now get to work. During the seemingly endless 2008 primary campaign, someone told me that winning the nomination in a presidential campaign was like winning a pie-eating contest and being rewarded with more pie. If you think you are tired now, wait till the general. The only people who get to sleep on presidential campaigns are the people who lose presidential campaigns. First, the bad news. This campaign is going to be really hard. Incumbent presidents rarely lose. It's happened three times since 1972, and there were somewhat extenuating circumstances in all those cases. Trump is a massive head start. While you were eating pork tenderloins in Iowa and ice cream cones in New Hampshire, the Trump campaign spent enough money on Facebook ads to buy Mark Zuckerberg several seats on Elon Musk's space plane. Every Republican billionaire is going to be highly motivated to spend money to protect their tax cuts. Every super PAC will have more money than they need. It's certain that you will be massively outspent. Trump and the Republicans will fight dirty as hell. Voter suppression, voter intimidation, politicized criminal investigations, weaponization of the entire federal government, and another round of Russian hacking. So it's not going to be easy. Not to put too much pressure on you, but the fate of American democracy and the health of the planet are on the line. Presidential campaigns take place on the shifting sands of real-time events, of which you have no control. In 2004, Osama bin Laden released an audio tape threatening America the weekend before the election, perhaps tipping the election to Bush. Barack Obama's 2008 campaign was upended six weeks before the election by the collapse of the American financial sector. In 2016, Hillary Clinton suffered through a series of October surprises, not the least of which included the FBI director, kinda, sorta, but not really, reopening a criminal investigation to her email protocol. The point is not to scare you, although I hope you're scared, but to say that there will be a lot of things out of your control. The best campaigns focus on the things they can control. They get the basic building blocks right so that they have the best chance to navigate the gauntlet of unforeseen events looming before them. With that caveat in mind, here are my recommendations to maximize your chances of defeating Trump. These strategies are based on what went right and wrong in 2008-2012 and what went wrong and right in 2016. Before we get into specific recommendations, here is one piece of advice that is more important than all the others. Don't get hacked. Seriously, don't. Say it with me now. Two-factor authentication. Change the game. Campaigns have certainly changed in the last decade or so. Sophisticated data and analytics, souped-up digital departments, a focus on social media, etc. However, these innovations have been tacked onto the same old campaign structure that has existed far longer than my two decades in democratic politics. Television ads, phone calls, and mail are still the primary strategies for persuading voters. This is a massive error. If you don't believe me, assemble everyone in your campaign staff under the age of 35. Ask them the following questions. When was the last time you watched a commercial on TV? When was the last time you answered the phone from an unknown number? When was the last time you checked your mail? Crickets. In a rapidly changing world where Democrats depend on high turnout among young voters to win, why would campaigns continue to use tools that have no chance of success with those voters? Poverty of ambition, risk aversion, and a compensation structure that creates perverse incentives for political consultants to hang on to the sinking ship of old media are just a few reasons. 
In too many campaigns, the chief strategist is the same person who makes the TV ads and takes a cut from the ad buy. Therefore, it is always in the interest of the strategist to argue for a strategy that spends more money on TV ads and less on digital and field. I once worked on a campaign where the chief strategist was the TV consultant, and the person responsible for all spending decisions was a partner in the chief strategist's firm. Every strategy decision was polluted with the perception of profiteering. That campaign lost. The world has changed, but campaigns haven't changed enough. Because Trump was a pretty dim reality TV star who was unable to hire traditional political operatives to staff his campaign, he stumbled into innovation. Because most Republican donors thought Trump was too embarrassing to be associated with, his campaign didn't have the money to build the traditional structures to run the same television ads of previous campaigns. He was forced to do things differently, and he won because of it. To beat Trump, your campaign needs to be different. But what does different mean? Democrats need to once again revolutionize how campaigns are run, break down the model, and build it from the ground up. Question every assumption, break every tradition, hire people who came up questioning how politics is practiced as opposed to the experts in the old ways, find the smartest people under the age of 25 on your campaigns and listen to them. They are unburdened by tradition and blessed by a fresh perspective. A few points on what that means. Your campaign needs to be digital first. Digital is not a department within your campaign, it's a mentality. It's 2020, everything is digital. Advertising, communicating, organizing, and fundraising. Polling should be done to know how you are doing the race, never to determine what you should say or believe. Most campaigns are top-down, hierarchical structures. A different campaign is bottom-up, pushes responsibility down to the grassroots, and trusts your volunteers and organizers to win the race for you. Don't rely on the mainstream media to get your message out. You need to build an alternative media ecosystem that tells your story on your terms. Hit Trump where he is strong. A primary tenet of modern political strategy is to find your opponent's secret weakness, expose it to the world, and then ruthlessly exploit it. In 2008, John McCain's biggest weakness was his strong support for the policies of the incredibly unpopular Bush administration, particularly the war in Iraq. Nearly every ad we ran used footage of McCain hugging Bush at the 2004 convention or McCain puttering around in a golf cart driven by Bush at its family estate in Kennebunkport. In 2012, Mitt Romney's biggest weakness was that he was a plutocrat with a policy platform designed to help his fellow plutocrats. Trump is a very different politician. As we know from 2016, the strategies that worked on more typical politicians like McCain and Romney don't work as well on Trump. Some of the unofficial autopsies of 2016 attribute that to a failure of execution. The Democratic Party's effort to disqualify Trump in the minds of voters was far from perfect. But the same strategy executed perfectly would have led to the same result. I think the problem was something bigger. Trump's weaknesses are not some secret to be revealed with great opposition research and a killer ad. Trump's flaws are on display for the world to see. Expectations for Trump are so low that voters find almost nothing shocking. Less than a month before the 2016 election, a tape leaked with Trump bragging about sexual assault in the most heinous way, and numerous women came forward to accuse him of sexual misconduct. This would have ended any other candidate in any other race. Not Trump. Yet too many Democrats wake up every morning, turn on their phones, fire up the New York Times app, hoping to find the end of Trump. Every new revelation of historic misconduct brings fresh hopes for Trump's support to collapse. But it never happens. An exhaustively reported New York Times story that proved beyond the shadow of a doubt that Trump engaged in tax fraud had no impact. Neither did the Mueller report, or Trump being named an unindicted co-conspirator in a case that defraud the public by paying hush money to a woman with whom he had an affair. There are undoubtedly private investigators being paid by liberal billionaires to scour Eastern Europe for the famous P-tape. If that ever services, once we all stop laughing, 
we will look at the polls and see no change. My advice would be to hit Trump where he is strong. Instead of trying to exploit Trump's many and very manifest weaknesses, erode his strengths. Immigration and trade are Trump's two best issues. They fire up his base, persuade just enough swing voters. They were key to his victory in 2016, but he is also vulnerable on those issues, if your campaign makes a strong, sustained argument. There are three components to winning the immigration argument against Trump. First, call out his failures. Trump spends most mornings tweeting about hordes of invaders marching toward the southern border. He rants about a crisis in the system and Salvadoran gang members threatening white people all across the country. None of this is true, but Trump has painted a persuasive picture of immigration in America. Just enough Americans believe Trump because he taps into long-standing racial fears, which are exacerbated by a growing fear of a changing country. Trump, with the help of Fox, has done a very good job of making some white Americans feel like the country they know is under assault. Here's the part Trump doesn't say. He has been in charge of the immigration system for the last three years. Trump stood on the stage of the Republican convention and said, I alone can fix it. He hasn't, and we know this because he tells us every day. Trump's political imperative to fire up his base with racist fear-mongering is in direct conflict with his message of promises kept. Exploit that conflict by laying the blame for it at his feet. Second, not only has Trump failed to fix the system, but he has profited off its brokenness. Mr. Tough on Immigration has used undocumented laborers at many of his businesses. He even staffed one of his golf clubs with an entire village of undocumented workers from Guatemala, according to one of those workers. The final component to winning the argument is the most important. Too many Democrats end up playing Trump's game. They get into a bidding war about who was tougher and smarter on immigration. In doing so, they play right into his trap by inadvertently buying the premise of Trump's argument. Don't play Trump's game. Call out his game. Tell people why Trump is trying to scare them. Something like this may work. President Trump is lying to you about immigration. He's trying to scare you, and he's trying to distract you. He doesn't want you to know that he pays for his tax cut for the wealthy in Wall Street by cutting Medicare and making your health care more expensive. He doesn't want you to know that he is letting corporations pollute your air and water and make your food and your kids' toys less safe. And he's doing all of this while using his office to help his friends, punish his enemies, and enrich himself. Trump's success in the Republican primary can be attributed to a number of things, but trade may have played the biggest role. For years, there has been a growing gap between the free trade policies of Republican elites and the populism and isolationism of the Republican base. Trump broke with the party's position on free trade. This split with his fellow Republicans is what made a Manhattan billionaire with a gold toilet credible to working-class voters. Taking down Trump's approval rating by a few points may be the most effective way to flip states like Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. Here are some messages on trade to use against Trump. Trump talks tough on China but much of the Trump-branded products, including his hideous ties, are made there. President Trump launched an incompetent trade war with China that cost American farmers and consumers billions. When he started losing, he tried to help farmers, but he screwed that up too. Most of the money went to big corporations instead of family farms. The money for Trump's corporate farm bailout was borrowed from, yes, you guessed it, China. Remember, it's both and, not either or. Ever since Trump won, Democrats have engaged in a never-ending, emphatically stupid, ill-informed debate about whether the party should appeal to a growing base or try to court more moderate swing voters. This is a false choice up until the moment the Electoral College is abolished. The only way a Democrat can piece together the 270 votes necessary to win the White House is to do both. Your campaign needs to turn out first-time and periodic voters and win over independent voters, particularly in the exurban and rural counties that turn Florida, Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania from Obama blue to Trump red. 
This is the task, but as daunting as it seems, it's very doable. Obama did it twice without twisting himself into an ideological pretzel, and dozens of Democrats did it in 2018. Many in the media, whose brains have been broken by Twitter, treat the Democratic base and swing voters as warring factions with insoluble differences. They think every base voter you attract repels more than one swing voter and vice versa. That's wrong and demonstrates a truly one-dimensional view of politics. The truth is that the same message can work on both groups. You don't have to attack right or swerve left. They share concerns about an economy that is rigged in favor of the wealthy. They both believe health care is a right and that the Affordable Care Act should not be repealed. They are both concerned about the rampant corruption in Trump's Washington. You can say the same thing in Philly and Scranton and win voters in both places. You just have to go to both places and offer a message that speaks to the shared concerns of all Americans. A unifying message can seem naive in the polarized dystopia that is politics in the Trump age, but it's actually your best path to victory. Make it a choice, not a referendum. Conventional wisdom is that the best way to unseat the incumbent is to make the race a referendum on the incumbent as opposed to a choice between two candidates. But in politics, conventional wisdom is often a synonym for wrong. In 2012, the Romney campaign tried to make the election all about Obama's stewardship of a struggling economy. In doing so, Romney focused all of his campaign energy on tearing down Obama and none on building himself up. In a different circumstance, the 2016 Clinton campaign made a similar mistake because they believed impressions of Hillary Clinton were set in stone, so the best way to move voters was to focus on Trump. Neither strategy worked. No matter what you do, this election will be a choice between you and Trump. You have to spend a lot of time, energy, and resources making the case for yourself. The case against Trump is self-evident. He is a racist, corrupt buffoon who is an embarrassment to the country. Everyone knows the argument. They knew this in 2016, and enough people chose him anyway. Your campaign must argue why the country should choose you instead of Trump. Why are you the better choice? How will people's lives improve if you are president? What about your story makes you the one individual out of 300 million to lead our nation at this moment? Trump's deficiencies as a president and a human are priced into the baseline. His supporters are not dumb. They voted for Trump with eyes wide open to his flaws and the risks involved. Some were, of course, racist and appreciated Trump's racism. Others were partisan Republicans who would vote for a mayonnaise sandwich if it had an R next to it. And finally, a lot of voters decided that their frustration with politics as usual was sufficient to justify a big gamble. It's your job to show those voters, A, why that gamble didn't pay off, and B, why you were worthy of another gamble only four years later. You have spent the last 18 months campaigning all over the country. You've done approximately 800 town halls, you've been on Rachel Maddow 30 times, and Pot Save America more times than you can count. Yet the voters who will decide this election know almost nothing about you. It's a weird feature of American politics that the people who end up deciding the election are the ones who pay the least attention to politics. The pundits would have you believe that this group is a bunch of fickle, white working class voters with undiagnosed economic anxiety in Ohio and Wisconsin. They are wrong. Too often we think of undecided voters, the soccer moms and NASCAR dads of elections past, as swing voters choosing between two candidates. But the biggest group of undecided voters is the people simply deciding whether to vote. Therefore, your campaign needs to spend a lot of time, energy, and resources introducing you, your vision, and your platform to these voters. Of course, you should make the case against Trump but not at the expense of making the case for yourself. Run to win, not to not lose. Here's some hard truth. You will probably lose. It's nothing personal. It's not a comment on you as a campaigner. It's just a fact. Incumbents usually win, and they almost always win in a strong economy. The odds are not in your favor. You can win, but you have to run to win. 
you can't run the political equivalent of the prevent defense. This means having a high risk tolerance in your campaign. Barack Obama won in 2008 in part because he had nothing to lose. We knew the odds were long, so we were willing to push the envelope strategically. We didn't take risks for risk's sake, but we tolerated a lot of risk if we thought there was a real strategic reward if the bet paid off. Risk aversion is a natural state of being for most politicians, but it's a great way to lose a presidential campaign, especially when challenging an incumbent. David Plouffe, Obama's campaign manager, would remind us, Obama included, that we were at our best when we were on what he called the high wire. The risk made us a better campaign and Obama a better candidate. The willingness to take risks allowed us to experiment. It's why we had Obama deliver his convention speech in a football stadium in front of 80,000 people instead of a convention hall in front of a few thousand political insiders. It's why Obama subjected himself to the tough questioning of Tim Russert on Meet the Press the Sunday before the Iowa caucus, even though he was leading in the polls. And it's why Obama went on an overseas campaign swing in the middle of the race when one mistake could have sunk the whole campaign by validating concerns about his lack of traditional political experience. We tried to keep our foot on the gas. Sometimes that meant we crashed and burned. Running a traditionally cautious campaign was a guaranteed loss for a non-traditional candidate. In your case, it's also a guaranteed loss to run a traditional campaign against a non-traditional candidate like Trump. It's easier to be bold in the primary, but now that you are the nominee, you will have every elected official, party leader, and washed-up consultant whispering in your ear and second-guessing your every move, usually through the media. It's super annoying and can lead to caution and risk aversion since every decision elicits criticism from someone. But there's only one option. Tune them out. They're good ideas, take them, but you have to run your race and run to win it. Win the economic battle. Trump has made the economy the centerpiece of his re-election campaign. He spends most mornings giving himself a pat on the back via Twitter for creating the greatest economy ever. Trump is his own hype man. Now, we know this is all bullshit. Trump didn't create the economy. It's not as great as he says, unless you're someone like Trump. All the data shows that Trump is taking credit for all the work that Obama did to put the economy back on track. Trump's only real accomplishment was a tax cut that did nothing to help the economy, but did make the rich a lot richer and add a trillion to the deficit. Even when there is bad economic news, Trump pretends it didn't happen, yells fake news, or blames the Fed chair that he appointed. Nonetheless, the economy is Trump's best answer to every question. He uses it to push back on questions about his competence, he uses it to ease concerns about his corruption, and the economy is his best argument against changing horses mid-race. Despite this, you must take on the economic debate and win it. Step one, use the success of the Trump economy against him. The traditional markers of the economy are good. Unemployment is historically low. The stock market is up since Trump came into office. You don't want to have to depend on an economic downturn to win. Therefore, you need to reframe the question from how good is the economy to how fair is the economy. Make it a debate about values. Who are you fighting for and who is Trump fighting for? Most of the gains have gone to the wealthiest Americans, Wall Street and the big tech companies, and that is by design. Trump believes that the rich and powerful should get the benefits, not the working middle class. Here's a proposed message. Corporate profits are up. Corporate taxes are down. Wages are basically flat. The costs of food, college, gas, and healthcare are up. If Trump is reelected, this will get worse. The rich will get even richer, and you will pay the bill. If you want an economy that works for you, vote for a Democrat. Step two, hammer the Trump tax cut. A plan to give massive tax cuts to billionaires, companies that ship jobs overseas, and Wall Street banks, and pay for it by cutting Medicare and jacking up health insurance premiums, is an A-plus answer to the question, how would a candidate commit political suicide most efficiently? 
Yet, this is the signature legislative accomplishment of the Trump presidency. Trump ran for president as a populist, a blue-collar billionaire who would fight for working-class voters and raise taxes on the wealthy. But he has governed as a plutocrat. Trump, with the help of Paul Ryan, has given Democrats the political gift of a lifetime. Take advantage of it. Use the tax plan to tell a story about who Trump is fighting for and how he thinks the economy works. Here are a couple of examples. Thanks in part to Trump's plan, many huge multinational corporations pay $0 in federal taxes. Americans pay more for their Amazon Prime subscription than Amazon pays in federal taxes. If you think that is right, vote for Trump. If you think corporations should pay their fair share, vote for a Democrat. Trump promised to protect Medicare, but he wants to pay for his corporate tax cut with hundreds of billions of dollars in cuts to Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security. Step three, you need policies, not for policy's sake. You can't beat something with nothing. It's not enough to just criticize Trump's policies. You have to offer an alternative economic path for the country. You're a self-described wonk. You may not love all the debates and cable news interviews. You are probably so bored of giving the same stump speech at every event. But the policy, that's the part that gets your blood going. Everything else is the price you pay to get to office so you can work on policy. You're not alone. Late in his second term, I asked Barack Obama if he had any desire to be president for more than eight years. The thing I will miss most is working on complicated problems with really smart people. If I could cut a deal where I could get beamed into meetings from the beach in Hawaii to focus on the issues and someone else did the rest of the job, I would definitely consider it. Elections are not policy debates. He or she with the most white papers is not the de facto winner. The problem is that most voters are too busy to read the well-thought-out policy on your website. Honestly, most are too busy to go to your website. So your policy ideas must have a compelling elevator pitch. And in this era, the elevator ride is at most 280 characters long. While most voters know they aren't experts on the intricacies of a specific policy, they do know people. And that's how they often make a decision. Therefore, your policy ideas need to tell your story, who you are, where you came from, who you were fighting for. If they don't tell people something about your values and character, they aren't worth spending time on in the campaign, no matter how good an idea they are. Don't chase Trump down rabbit holes. In the run-up to the 2018 election, Democrats across the country had been running on a very specific and effective message. Republicans want to take away your health care and cut your Medicare to pay for a tax cut for corporations and billionaires. Trump, whose approach to politics is more instinctual than intellectual, sensed that this was a problem. He decided to change the subject. Out of nowhere, he started tweeting about an invasion of MS-13 members and terrorists marching toward the southern border. Like all Trump lies, there was just enough of a kernel of truth buried deep in there to give Fox News and the rest of the propaganda operation permission to run with it. It was true that there was a large number of Central Americans fleeing violence who were coming to the United States seeking political asylum. The group was largely children and thousands of miles from the border when Trump began tweeting. To protect Trump against the invasion, invented in his own demented, racist cortex, Trump even sent U.S. troops to the border. Democrats refused to fall into Trump's trap. Instead of responding to his absurdities and changing the subject from healthcare, which excites our voters, to immigration, which excites his voters, Democrats stayed on message and won. This approach was a lesson learned from 2016. In 2016, the Democrats chased Trump down nearly every rabbit hole and responded to his every tweet, outrage, and scandal. This machine gun spray message strategy meant that voters were exposed to a lot of information about Trump, but it was never woven into a coherent narrative. There was no message repetition to drive home the information. It was just ephemeral. One day Trump was a racist, another day he was a misogynist, and on a third day he was a crooked businessman. The lesson is clear. 
Trump's political superpower is turning the political conversation to the topics that help Republicans and hurt Democrats. Winning requires the discipline to tell a coherent story about why you should run the country and why Trump shouldn't, without getting distracted by all the shiny objects Trump throws in your path. This is harder than it sounds, and it's much harder to ignore Trump when you're running against him than against a random Republican member of Congress. All the incentives of our totally broken media ecosystem push you toward the rabbit hole. Want retweets? Deliver a sick burn to Trump's latest tweet. Want coverage on cable TV? Talk about whatever Trump is talking about. Unless you're a Kardashian or a Trump, all PR is not good PR. The question isn't how much coverage you got. It's how did that coverage advance your strategy? What did you communicate to your target voters to help persuade a plurality of them in the states that add up to 270? Nothing else matters. Just be you. My closing piece of advice is the most annoying advice possible. Whenever Barack Obama would hit some turbulent political seas, there would be some meeting with some outside advisors, old friends, former staff, or seasoned Washington types. The purpose of this meeting was to get outside the unavoidable bubble of working slash living in the West Wing. The president wanted to talk to people with fresh perspective. The same thing would happen in every meeting. At some point, one of the attendees would affix their gaze on the president and with a Smithers-esque obsequiousness say, my recommendation is that your staff needs to let Barack be Barack. Every time this suggestion made me go briefly blind with rage. It implied that his advisors were trying to change him or bend him to our will. That was insulting to Obama and his advisors. It was also apple-polishing pablum way to kiss up to the president without actually offering a specific suggestion that could be judged on its merits. No one can disagree. No, sir, I disagree. You shouldn't be Barack. Wouldn't go over well. My former colleague's going to kill me for this, but just be you. It's either going to be enough or it isn't. Trying to be someone else definitely won't work. Voters have an amazing BS detector. They will know if you're trying to change who you are in order to win their votes. In a weird way, Trump won because he allowed the true essence of his insecurity-driven assholery to shine through. The best campaigns are the most authentic ones. Run as your best self, but run as yourself. Good luck. We're all counting on you. Don't fuck it up. What you can do to help. Support the Democratic nominee, no matter who it is, because they are approximately one trillion times better than Trump. If you live in a contested state, Volunteer for the Democratic nominee, canvas, phone bank, host meetings, drop off food at the campaign office, or if you have an extra bedroom, consider housing a campaign staffer. If you don't live in a contested state, go to a contested state to knock on doors for the campaign in the Democratic Party. If you don't live in a contested state and can't go to one, reach out to the campaign to see how you can volunteer from afar to make phone calls, send texts, and send postcards. If you can give money, any amount will help. Make sure all your friends are registered to vote. Annoy the shit out of them if you have to. If Trump wins again, losing a friend or two will be the least of your problems. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.